If you've got your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. It's really good to be back with you this Sunday. Thank you for the time off. I've been off for two weeks. Uh, blessing that it was. It's good to be back. I'm thankful for Dave and Cameron who preached, able to fill in, um, did a great job preaching about worship over the last two weeks. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. Normally, our practice is we go straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section. And to be honest with you, I'm ready to get back to that. Um, uh, but what we're doing right now, we're about to start in the book of Hebrews in the next few weeks or so. Um, and we'll start in chapter one. We're just doing chapter three today. But what we're doing right now is we are reminding ourselves of who we are here at First Baptist Church. Uh, we've come into this new space over the last three weeks, and a lot of things are new, a lot of things are exciting, but our mission hasn't changed. And so we're reminding ourselves of who we are and what our mission is. Our mission is to make disciples. That's the mission Jesus Christ gave the church, Matthew chapter 28, to make disciples. And we're to grow as disciples. Discipleship means growing in our faith, growing in our love for Christ, growing as we follow Christ. That's who we are as first, at First Baptist Church. And way back when we started, uh, the last three, four weeks ago, we started talking about this mission and vision that we've had for the last five years. And we're going to have, as we continue into the future uh, of making disciples, we looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, where Jeru the Jerusalem church, this new church, had to disciple 3,000 people that came to faith all at one time on the day of Pentecost. And how they, did they do that? And we walked through those verses, and we saw well, all that they did fit under three categories, worship, connect, and serve. And so that's what, our, um, that's what our vision is for how we accomplish this mission to make disciples, but also for us to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. Worship, connect, and serve. And so worship, connect, and serve, it, it isn't just platitudes. It's not just cliche, cute little, you know, cute little words, a neat little mission statement for us to put on the wall. It, it's how we live. This is what it means to make disciples of Jesus Christ, what it means for us to grow as disciples. It's a, it's a pathway, if you will, of growth, to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, to grow in your faith, to grow in relationship to Jesus Christ. You must live a life of worship. And over the last two weeks, Dave and Cameron preached about worship, must be worshiping corporately with the body of Christ. Must be worshiping individually as you commune with God through Bible study and prayer and your spiritual disciplines and your time with God. And on top of that, to grow as a disciple, you must be connected in discipling relationships. That's what we're going to talk about today with other believers. You can't grow without it. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you from this text in Hebrews. And on top of that, Growing in Christ comes through serving for the kingdom of God, serving one another, serving the community as we show the light of Christ, serving the kingdom of God by evangelizing. You can't grow without it. You won't grow as a disciple without all three. A life of worship, a life of connecting and discipling relationships, and a life of serving. It's the pathway of a growing disciple. So as I said, you've heard two sermons over the last two weeks on the importance of worship in our life as a, as a growing disciple. Today, I want to highlight what it means to connect in discipling relationships. 
Now, when I say discipling relationships, what we're talking about there is, is believers intentionally investing in one another for the purpose of helping each other follow Jesus. It's not just getting together. It's not just being together. It's not just having fun together, although that's part of it, but it is intentionally helping one another follow Jesus. If you remember back when we look in Acts chapter 2 and we saw what the early church did, it said they were, they were devoted to breaking bread in their homes and meeting in their homes as well as meeting in the temple. They were invested, it said, devoted to the fellowship. And so we talked about how Jesus made disciples when we went through that passage. He invested his life in those 12 men for three years that they would go and that they would make disciples. We, we talked about Paul and how Barnabas invested in Paul and invested himself in him, shared his ministry with Paul, did life with Paul as Paul was a new believer before he went and told Timothy, Timothy, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to entrust uh, what I have entrusted to you to other faithful men who can teach. And so this p- pattern of disciple making, it, it's really the pattern that's given in the New Testament. Discipleship is a community project. You can't make disciples alone. You can't grow as disciples alone. This is what we're going to see from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Now, I'm going to read these verses uh, a piece at a time and explain them as we go. But before I do that, you need to know that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, those who had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. For the most part, they were Hebrew Christians. The problem was that they were suffering. They were suffering severe persecution from their fellow Jews. In many cases, they were outcasts from their own families and their friends because they had trusted in Jesus and were following Jesus. They were shunned in their synagogues uh, and their, the whole way of life that they had known. And there was this incredible pressure on them to spare themselves all this suffering and all of this opposition and all of this hardship just by going back to the old way. Go back to the old religion. Go back to the temple. Go back to the sacrifices. Go back to Judaism. So the book of Hebrews is written to exhort them to hold fast to Jesus, to not go back to Judaism. Hebrews proclaims over and over again, Jesus is better than all these things. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the true temple. He is the perfect once for all sacrifice. He's the true high priest. All of these truths are given to us in Hebrews. He is the fulfillment of all the signs and the foreshadows that Judaism and Old Testament ritual and all of those things pointed to. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling these Hebrew Christians, there's nothing to go back to. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 3, chapter 3 begins, the writer of Hebrews is showing them that Jesus is greater than Moses. And as the reader is being urged to not turn away from Jesus. Let's read verses 5 and 6 as we make a running start up to 7. Y'all with me? Okay, good enough. I'm taking Verse 5 says this. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's saying Jesus is the greater Moses. And look what he says. And we are his house 
If indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope, meaning hold fast to Jesus. He's saying, don't go back. Hold to your confidence. Hold to your trust in Christ. And then we're given an example in verses, excuse me, 7 through 11 from the Old Testament of how Israel turned away from God in their hearts. So let's look at this example. Verse 7. Therefore, make sure you see what he says. We are his house if we hold fast to this confidence, this faith in Jesus. Therefore, because of this, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Let's stop there for just a moment. Now verses 7 through 11 are actually a quote from Psalm 95. But I'm sure you know what the writer's referring to here, right? He's talking about when God brought Israel out of Egypt with the plagues upon the Egyptians and he parted the Red Sea and allowed them to cross, led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire through the wilderness. And as we've been walking through that in Exodus on Wednesday nights, we're almost finished with Exodus now, but at every step of the way through that journey, they rebelled, they complained even wanting to go back to Egypt several times. God miraculously brought them right to the doorstep of the promised land, and Israel refused to enter. You remember? They sent 12 spies into the land, and 10 spies came back and said, no, this is impossible. We can't do this. We're never going to make this. Only two men, Joshua and Caleb, said, oh, we can do it. God will be with us. And in Numbers 14, they almost stoned those two men to death. They didn't believe the promises of God. They rebelled. Their hearts were hardened, it says. Do not harden your heart like those of the rebellion. He says they always go astray in their hearts. So what God did was he turned them around and he marched them into the wilderness and he promised that that generation would never enter into his rest. And they all died in the wilderness. Forty years later, it was the next generation that went into the land under Joshua. The problem was their hearts. It's what the text tells us. They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And so the writer of Hebrews uses this quote from Psalm 95 to say, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts like them. He uses this example of Israel's history to give us this warning. Verse 12, take care. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, take care, the words take care there in the ESV, it literally means to watch to look after, to keep guard. It's in the, in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing action, continuous activity. Keep on watching, keep on guarding, be continually on guard, lest there be in any of you this evil, unbelieving heart. Now, immediately when we read that, we all say, well, that's not talking about me. You know, it, it doesn't apply to me because I believe. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm faithful to God. Well, the text says differently. 
It's talking to all of us. It says, take care lest there be in any of you. He's talking to all these Hebrew Christians. In any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Saying, don't think it can't happen to you. When Israel came out of Egypt, boy, they were praising God. They were declaring their allegiance to God. When God destroyed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, they sang his praises. The song of Moses on the other side of the sea. When God thundered his covenant from Mount Sinai, they were committed to follow him, to obey his word, to be his people. They said, all that you have said, we will do. But in their hearts, there was this seed of unbelief. The Israelites in the wilderness, man, they were happy to follow God as long as everything was going well. As long as there were no hardships, no lack of food, no lack of water, no mighty enemies to face. But as soon as circumstances changed, their faith was tested in adversity and suffering Unbelief came bubbling up out of their hearts. So the warning here is to beware, to be watchful, to go to war against the smallest seeds of unbelief that crop up when opposition comes or suffering, persecution, temptation to sin. You know, when you think about fighting sin or watching your heart, making sure that you watch your heart, that, that you don't sin. What we usually think of is sins of excess, you know, sins of worldliness, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, a life of, of debauchery or wild living or something like that. But these Hebrew Christians that this was written to, they weren't being tempted to forsake Christ for the pleasures of the flesh or for living in a pagan world or to go out and live like pagans. They were being tempted to go back to the old religion. <clears throat> go back to their old religious ways that they'd always known. To go back to the temple, the sacrifices, the rituals, all of that stuff. For the Hebrew Christians, <clears throat> falling away from the living God is not going out and living like a pagan. It's going back to old, dead, works religion. Working your way to be right with God. That's what he means by an evil, all of that other stuff is included, you know, the sins of the flesh and all of the things that we think of. But at its core, he's calling them not to go back to Judaism, not to go back to work in your way to be right with God, not to go back to all of the things that pointed to Christ now that Christ is here. We just went through the book of Galatians line by line a few months ago. And we saw that our hearts are bent towards reverting back to the law in our thinking. When we do great and godly works and our, you know, we just, we're, we're living so faithfully for Jesus and we're serving and we just do great today. Man, we have a tendency to think that, you know, I've earned some extra points with God today. You know, God is sure, boy, he's sure, he, he, he better be thankful he's got me. You know what you're doing? You're leaving the gospel. You're forsaking Christ. All that we are, all that we have is in Christ. And in Christ alone, he's given us perfect standing before the, before the Father. When we do that, we're trusting in dead works. 
And on the opposite side, when we fail and we do horribly and we sin and we can't seem to, we can't seem to do anything right, our hearts tell us, oh, you've damaged your position in Jesus. Jesus died for your sins, sure, you believe that, but his death and resurrection won't cover this thing that you do. No, you're forsaking the gospel. Going back to old dead religion. If you don't guard your heart, take care, watch over your heart. The temptation to depart from the gospel in our thinking and in our actions in so many different ways is always there. And you'll get swept up into it. And when we forsake the gospel and start leaning back toward what our hearts love, and that's working our way to be right with God, earning something before God, or thinking that we must earn something before God, and if we don't, believing that we have somehow lost something before God, you know what's going to happen to you if you stay in that state? You're going to get swept up into sinful, unbelieving works righteousness, and you'll end up a bitter old Pharisee just going through the motions, because that's what I've always done. Or you'll drown in despair, knowing that it doesn't matter what I do. I can't live this out. I can't do all this in my own strength. So there's no point in me striving to try to live for Christ and follow Christ faithfully, because I know I can't be faithful. And you'll wallow in a pit of despair. We have to watch, take care, keep guard, lest there be in any of us this heart of unbelief. And how do we do that? The text tells us, verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now that's amazing to me. You see what he says? How do we watch? How do we take care, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief? He says, we do so by exhorting one another daily. If you were to come to me and ask me, Jason, how do I guard my heart? I would say, pray, man. Read your Bible every single day. Spend time with God. And, and those are right answers. You know, we spent two weeks talking about how worship grows us as disciples. We have to do those things. We need those to grow in Christ. We need to hear from his word. We need to commune with him in prayer and spiritual disciplines. We need to worship with the body of Christ corporately. It's necessary to grow as disciples of Jesus. But look what the writer of Hebrews says here. He says, take care, watch your heart by exhorting one another daily. To exhort means, to, to, means a lot of things. It means to comfort or encourage. Sometimes it can mean to correct or admonish. And this exhortation is not just the occasional thing. It's not just giving a kind word or a nice comment every now and again. You know, seeing somebody in the hallway and saying, hey, that looks good on you. Well, I've done my exhortation for the day, so I'm good. No, it's a life invested in one another. Lives spent helping one another follow Jesus. It says we are to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. That means for the rest of your lives. When tomorrow gets here, you know what it's going to be called? Today. I mean, tomorrow it's going to be called today. Right now it's tomorrow, but it'll be today. Got it? 15 years from now, you know what that day is going to be called when we get there? 
It's going to be called today. Every day will be called today until Jesus returns. So as long as it's called today, exhort one another. Exhort one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see the reason why we exhort one another? The reason why we exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We fight unbelief and sin together. And that requires, it requires that we be in discipling relationships with one another. He is not here telling the Hebrew Christians to go out to random people that you don't know and exhort them so that they won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's saying for us to exhort one another daily in these discipling relationships in the body of Christ where you know one another's struggles, where you know one another's failures, where you know one another's hearts. You are to come alongside one another and help each other fight unbelief and follow Jesus together. The point that he makes is that sin is deceitful. Deceitful means you don't know it's happening. Our hearts turn away from Christ all the time. We are prone to go back to living by the law. We won't do it here because we know the truth, but we're prone to live like it. We're prone to let our hearts go back to the law. And and what that looks like sometimes is is being drowning in worry and fear and anxiety, uh, making idols out of all kinds of things around us. Whatever it is our hearts love, we we turn into an idol and we live for it. We can't live without it and we, we, we won't bow down down and worship it, but in our hearts, we're worshiping it as we live for it. Whatever it may be, we're prone to unbelief. We're deceived by sin all the time. And that kind of unbelief, you know, idolatry and worry and anxiety and fear when when we're consumed by them, despair, that kind of unbelief, it sneaks up on you. And it has you in its grip before you ever even know it. In those moments, we've forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten who we are in Christ. We've forgotten what he's paid for. We've forgotten what he's done. We've forgotten our standing in Christ. We've forgotten who God is, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And no one is above the deceitfulness of sin. No one is above it. Not even pastors. Go to anybody who works on staff here at the church and say, you know, I wish I had as much faith as Jason does. He doesn't worry about anything ever. They will laugh in your face. I worry about everything. Sometimes I drown in it. You know what that's called? An evil heart of unbelief. I've come to realize more than ever before, I can't fight these battles alone. I need people who know me, who know my struggles, who know my sin, 
I need them to speak God's truth, speak God's promises to me. You know, when, when these times of, I'm just going to call it unbelief. I, I'm talking about me now, so I can call it whatever I want. When these times of unbelief come and, and there's worry and fear and anxiety and despair and, and, and all of this stuff comes and this time of, uh, of unbelief come, I have, I have some men around me who know me and know my struggles, know my, know my pain, know my sin, and they're able to speak truth to me. And you know what happens? They have not told me anything I don't already know. I like to think, I don't know my Bible as well as I'd like to know it, but I like to think I know it pretty good. And they tell me promises that I've read before. They tell me things I know before. But when someone who knows your heart, who knows your struggles, knows your sin, knows who you are, speaks God's truth to your life and says, this applies to you, man. God is speaking and God's promises have a way of turning my heart away from sin and turning it toward Jesus Christ where it is supposed to be pointed. We need each other. I need you. And like it or not, you need me too. We need to walk through this life with other disciples speaking the promises of God to one another, holding one another accountable in how we live, praying for one another, bearing one another's burden, rejoicing and weeping with one another. And the only way that this happens is in relationships built intentionally around discipleship, helping each other follow Jesus. I'm not talking about a master teacher coming and taking a novice under his wing, although that's great. I'm talking about two disciples helping each other follow Jesus. The Christian life is a life of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a life of constantly watching and praying that we don't fall into temptation. But this is not a battle that you can fight alone. This may be hard for you to hear, but you cannot fight your sin on your own. And if you are self-aware at all, you already know that. But rather than seeing your inability to live this out, your inability to live as Christ has commanded you as despairing or a reason to just give up striving and just go through the motions, rather than seeing it as that, you need to hear that all of us are in the same boat. All of us are just like you. You fight with your sin and you fail and, and you fail repeatedly and, and, and you don't know what's wrong with you and you don't know why I can't overcome this. We're all just like you. Even the people who look like they've got it all going on and you look at them and you say, man, ain't no way they got any problems. They do, I promise you. They're fighting their sin just like you. Their sin may be different than yours, but it's the same thing. We're all right there together. And we can't do it alone. We can't fight sin and unbelief alone. We can't follow Jesus alone. And here's the thing, church. We were never meant to. We were never meant to even try. God gave us one another 
to help one another follow Jesus, to help one another battle sin and unbelief. Connecting, as we call it, it's not just about gathering in groups and eating fried chicken. Oh, come on. You know wherever two Baptists gather, some chickens are going to die. We all know that. Connecting is about authentic, accountable, discipling relationships. The text is telling us we're to invest ourselves in one another so that our hearts won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to exhort one another. We need to be exhorted by one another. We need to exhort. You need to be exhorted by those who know your struggles, who hold you accountable. You need to exhort others whom you are invested in. This is how we make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's how we grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. To forsake connecting with one another as disciples is to invite the hardening of your heart through the deceitfulness of sin. We have to be connecting together as disciples in order to grow. At First Baptist Church, we're going to be worshiping, connecting, and serving. We're going to be connecting in our Sunday schools. We, we study the Word of God together. We're going to be connecting in our life groups. Life groups are designed to be accountable, discipling relationships. They're not Bible studies, and they're not just potlucks. They're designed to be accountable, discipling groups. And I know that we've had some growth in our church. I know that right now we don't have enough life groups. And most of the ones we have are too full. We're going to raise up new leaders in, in the coming months. We're going to call bigger groups to kind of branch off. We're working on all of that. It may be early next year before we can get any of that accomplished. But you can't wait on us. This is a matter of life and death. You need discipling relationships with others right now. You don't have to be in discipling relationships with everybody in this room. In fact, you can't be in discipling relationships with everybody in this room. What you need is two or three or four people that you are invested in, who are invested in you, who can hold you accountable, who can pray for you, who can weep with you when you weep, rejoice with you when you rejoice, and help you follow Jesus and battle your, your own heart. This is how we fight unbelief together. This is how we hold fast to Jesus all the way to the end. And holding fast, persevering in the faith is an evidence of the redeemed heart. The last two verses we'll look at today, he says this. Now I want you to make sure you follow the argument. Everything needs to be in context. I need to only say what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He said, watch your heart. And exhort one another so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And here's the reason why. For, because, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Now verse 14 is a little scary, isn't it? Makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Good. There are several warnings like this in Hebrews, and we're going to go through them all. We're going to start in two or three weeks. We're going to start working our way through the book of Hebrews, starting at chapter one. We're going to go all the way to the end. 
Several warnings like this in Hebrews that speak of falling away from the living God like we just read a moment ago or saying that we have come to share in Christ if we hold our confidence. And these warnings in Hebrews are always misinterpreted in two different ways. And I want to show you both ways this morning. First, some take this as proof that a person can actually lose their salvation. If they don't hold firm to Jesus, you're going to lose what you've gained by the cross. That cannot be what this verse means. Look what it actually says. Pay attention to what the text actually says. He says, we have come to share. It's the perfect tense, a completed action in the past. It's a fact. Right now, it's done. We are right now sharers with Christ. And then he says, if in the future we hold our confidence, our faith in Jesus to the end. You see what he's saying? He's not saying, it doesn't say you will share in Christ if you hold firm to your confession to the end. He says you already have come to share in Christ if in the future you hold firm to the end. Holding your confidence doesn't earn you a share in Christ. It shows that you already have a share in Christ. Do you see it? Am I making myself clear? Y'all with me? Close enough? Okay. Holding on to our faith, holding our confidence firm to the end is the evidence that our salvation in Christ is already accomplished, already complete, already done, and already secure. Got me? And that means the opposite is also true. He's telling the Hebrews, guys, if if you turn from Jesus and you go back to the old way, you go back to the sacrifices, you go, back to, you go back to whatever, you turn away from Christ and forsake your faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't lose your share in Christ, you never had it. So warnings like this don't deny that our salvation is secure and complete. They show us the evidence of our perfect and secure and complete salvation. One who is born again, truly born again, cannot lose their salvation, but they will endure to the end in faith. But there's another way that this is misinterpreted or taken wrongly. You see, because we know, we know for a fact that the Bible teaches the security of the believer in Jesus Christ, we're tempted to look at this warning And say, oh, okay, I see. This doesn't say that I can lose my salvation. Well, that means this warning don't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. It's real and it's urgent. And it's a real warning for you. Yes, it's true. A saved person cannot lose the salvation God has given. It's a work of God. The Holy Spirit indwells you and you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's also true that there are a whole lot of people who profess to know Jesus that have never been saved at all. Eternal security doesn't just mean, well, I repeated a prayer one time when I was eight years old. Or I believe the historical facts about Jesus. No, it means you've been born again, supernaturally transformed in heart, having become a new creature in Christ by grace through faith in Jesus. And believers live a new life. They walk in a new way. Why? Because God himself indwells you. We walk through it in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit does in the heart. So this warning 
is for every person who professes Christ. The evidence is your life and your heart. So take care lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. If you disconnect and toy around with sin, go back to the old life, go back to the dead religion or dead religious works, if that was your raising, continually being hardened in your heart, seared in your conscience, refusing to take seriously God's warnings, God's commands, God's word, following Jesus, if you continue down that path for the whole of your life, you give evidence that you have never been saved at all. You didn't lose anything. You never had it. I don't care what you prayed. I don't care how much you went to church when you were a kid. I don't care what you did at youth camp. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from among us because they were not of us. I've seen hundreds of people that look and act like believers, say all the right things, do all the right things, seem like they're on fire for God, but turn away from following Christ some even readily admitting, I don't want nothing to do with Jesus. The deceitfulness of sin. In fact, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, very well-known passage, I'm sure you know it, shows that some are so deceived that they actually argue with Jesus at the judgment. He says, that's where he says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons? They think that they're in and they're arguing with Jesus at the judgment. Didn't I? No, no, you're not talking about me. I did all these things. I, I prophesied in your name. I, I, I did all these things. And it's, Jesus said, I will say, I never knew you. Listen. All of this in this text here in Hebrews, it's not intended to make you a believer live in constant fear that I'm going to fall away. If you're in Jesus Christ, you will not fall away. Christ keeps his sheep. But it is intended to make us keep watch over our hearts because unbelief is deceitful. Sin is deceitful and it can grab hold of us easily. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's a real warning. So what do I do? First, you need to examine yourself, whether you be of the faith or not. It's not about what you did back then. Did I pray the right prayer? Did I say the right word? That has nothing to do with nothing. The Bible doesn't ever tell us you have to pray this prayer or you have to walk down this aisle. Or you... It says trust in Jesus. That's how you are saved. Am I trusting in Jesus? Do I believe that he paid for my sin? Have I entrusted my life to Jesus? Am I, am I convicted when I sin? Do I desire to follow him, to live for him? Examine yourself. Maybe you were raised in church and you know all the stories. You believe they really happened, but you've never turned your life over to Christ, entrusted yourself to him. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Trust in Jesus. Give him your heart and life. You don't have time to wait. Your soul hangs in the balance. Believer, what do I do? How do I guard my heart? How do I take care 
that there not be an evil heart of unbelief in me. He told us how. From verse 7 in Hebrews 3 all the way to verse 19, there is only one command, one exhortation, one, this is what you must do. Exhort one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We don't go back into a life lived for the world and sin because we have one another. And we're walking through this life with one another. Follow Christ. Follow him with your brothers and sisters as you invest yourself in discipling relationships, connecting together with believers to intentionally follow Christ together. You have to let somebody in. You have to share your heart, your sin, your struggles, your life. You have to let somebody in. And you have to, you have to basically put your life on the altar to invest in someone else. Because sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it hurts. I got my own problems. I don't need to be involved in myself and other people's problems. No, you have to be in discipling relationships with others to grow in Christ. You have to be. I have to be. As long as it's called today, as long as we are in this life, that's the exhortation for you, believer. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Take your place in the body of Christ. Invest yourself in one another. You don't have to invest yourself in all these people. You need two or three or four people that are helping you follow Christ, that you are helping follow Christ. That's how we grow. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this church that is worshiping, that is connecting, that is serving. And I know that it is very, very difficult to get into these discipling relationships, to make yourself vulnerable to someone else. God, I pray that you would grow us as a congregation, as individuals in this congregation. God, I pray that you would show us what it means to follow you. God, right now as I'm, as I'm speaking, I know that there are people here that are just tired. They're tired and they're exhausted and they're frustrated, battling sin, failing, and just ready to give up. I can't do this. God, show them that none of us can. We need our eyes focused on you, on the gospel, and we need each other. God, I pray that that message would come across loud and clear in our hearts today and that you would show us what it means for us individually to invest in one another. I pray that you would open doors in our lives to people that are around us that we're called to invest in and that are called to invest in us and that we would start to help one another follow Jesus together. God, we need you and we need you to work in our lives through one another. 
God, help us to be faithful. And if there's anyone here that does not know you, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself. If you've been convicting someone of their life and of their sin and of whether they've truly trusted in you, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself today. Show them that the only thing you require is payment for sin, and that payment was made on the cross of Calvary, and it is the only perfect and full and complete payment. And that if when we trust in Jesus, trust in what he did for us, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, God, you accept us into your family forever. God, I pray that they would call upon you today, that they would trust in you today, that they would give you their heart and life and be saved. Lord, we do thank you for your word. and We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. I would love to pray with you if you want to come. Will you stand with me?